The process for impeachment, how does it work, what does it mean, Professor Frank Bowman from the University of Missouri School of Law stops by to break it all down. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Always great to be here with you. We're jumping right into it today. Got lots of questions about the process of impeachment, and we have a wonderful guest joining us today, Professor Frank Bowman. Welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. You know, I just uh, obviously we're looking at uh, a, uh, an impeachment trial in the Senate and we uh, we live in an angry, divided uh, country right now. And so similar to an episode we did earlier on counting the votes, and that one had to do with counting the electoral college votes, you know, kind of at a tough time in our, our country's history there. You know, we decided knowledge is power. We're just going to give the civics information. I think kind of removing some of those uncertainties is kind of our service ad there. You know, here's here's what it is, maybe removing some of that uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty Certainly in the process, you know, brings down the frustration, maybe the temperature level a little bit. So, Professor, if you don't mind, I just want to uh, start with a really, really basic question, just to provide some context on impeachment. Just historically speaking, how many impeachments have there been since the Constitution was written, ratified, and then put into operation? Well, there have been several dozen. Most of them have not been of presidents. Most of them have been of judges. There have been, there's been one impeachment, impeachment of a United States senator. There's been an impeachment of a secretary of war. There have now been actually four formal impeachments uh, of a United States president, a near impeachment of President Nixon, but a relatively small number. Excellent. And then, you know, we, we talked, you talked about the president, you talked about some of the other positions, but just specifically kind of building that a little bit, you know, what other official government positions are subject to impeachment under the Constitution? The Constitution says that impeachment will apply to the president, the vice president, and all civil officers of the United States. Now, the the phrase civil officers is subject to some construction. The major uncertainty early on in the Republic was whether or not members of the legislature would be included as civil officers. Uh, And in fact, the very first uh, impeachment that was ever conducted in American history was that of Senator William Blunt in the late 1700s. It's generally conceded that he was acquitted finally by the Senate, not because he wasn't guilty, because he was, but because he was a senator and the Senate concluded that civil officers did not include senators. But federal judges, the Article Three kind, are certainly impeachable. And basically senior officials of the administration under the president are impeachable. Well, the Constitution enumerates uh, various reasons that someone can be impeached from office. And so it lists them. But then the last one, which I want to ask a follow up about, gets a little muddy. So there's several reasons. Then the last one has been, I think, kind of in a state of either incompletion or confusion. So can you walk us through those official listed reasons in the Constitution for impeachments? The list of grounds for impeachment in the Constitution includes treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason is fairly self-evident. It's actually the only crime that's actually defined in the Constitution itself. It really relates only to levying war against the United States or giving aid and comfort to its enemies. Bribery is pretty much what you would expect it to be, although as we saw in the first Trump impeachment, there's some dispute about whether bribery for impeachment purposes is the same thing as, uh, as bribery for the criminal law. But the phrase that is broadest and gives the most uh, room for interpretation is the last one, high crimes and misdemeanors. That phrase was adopted from British practice. It was really a term of art that emerged early on because the British really were the inventors of impeachment. The British Parliament invented impeachment in the 1300s. 
They used it for a variety of reasons, but the principal one that's relevant to us today is that they used it as a means of uh, legislative control or legislative pushback against an overweening or authoritarian uh, executive. Although they couldn't impeach the king or queen, they could impeach his or her ministers or officers. And over time, the phrase uh, high crimes and misdemeanors began to be used increasingly to cover the kinds of things that, that parliament impeached people for. One thing that's clear about high crimes and misdemeanors is it doesn't require an actual crime, as though it sounds like it does, but it doesn't. Essentially, what it really covers is a whole array of things that both historically and kind of logically amount to allegations of severe corruption, severe inability or failure to perform the duties of office, and finally, of course, the kinds of things that amount to an attack on the constitutional order itself. Yeah, so my, my follow-up on that, you know, and I'm not a constitutional expert like you are in this arena, but what was difficult for me in my research was, you know, seeing that you see, you know, specifically as it's enumerated, high crime or misdemeanor, but then you see, you know, convictions being, or sorry, uh, impeachments being initiated for non-crimes. And it seems like those reasons are kind of built out. They get very broad. That's sort of the tradition here as it's been done over time. But I think as James Madison said, and, you know, this is like, and I, I'm not going to quote him directly. This is a paraphrasing. He says, there certainly is wide range for impeachment reasons, but it can't be unlimited because essentially if it was, that means that the president serves at the pleasure of Congress. What are your thoughts about that sort of that balancing act? We haven't quite found that bright line rule yet. Well, there is no bright line rule, nor was there ever intended to be one. The original, the phrase that was in uh, the, the, the Constitution in the draft as they got through the constitutional summer of 1787 and were getting close to adjourning and going home was just treason and bribery. But a number of uh, the delegates were concerned quite properly that this just didn't reach broadly enough, that it didn't reach offenses against the Constitution itself, dangerous conduct that really imperiled the constitutional order. So they were looking around for another word or term that would would cover that kind of offense. And uh, George Mason uh, first suggested a different term. And when that was not accepted, he reverted to the old parliamentary term, high crimes and misdemeanors. It brings with it a bunch of English constitutional history, a bunch of case law, if you will, that tells us the kinds of things that Parliament impeached people before or before. But it, what, is, what is absolutely clear, despite arguments that you hear to the contrary, is that high crimes and misdemeanors never required an indictable crime. Never. Not in British history, not in ours. It's an argument that comes up every time. But then, of course, you might ask, well, what limitations really does it impose on impeachment? And the fact of the matter is, practically speaking, it doesn't impose any. Practically speaking, as Gerald Ford famously said, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors is essentially anything that a majority of the House of Representatives says it is. But that's a little bit cynical, and I think not quite true, although it's pragmatically true. The House can vote for anything it wants, as indeed can the Senate. I think the idea here, the notion of high crimes and misdemeanors, it's derived from our our British ancestors, it's derived from the framers' understanding, was that it's about very serious conduct that either renders an office holder essentially illegitimate because of his personal behavior, his personal corruption, or, again, poses a real danger to to the republic. And uh, the kinds of offenses for which presidents have been impeached customarily are, are of that type with the, even our, in our small sample size, with the notable exception, of course, of, 
that of Bill Clinton. And that's probably the reason why he was acquitted is that the Senate concluded that uh, however disgraceful his behavior had been, both respect to, with respect to Mr. Lewinsky personally and also with respect to his lies afterward, that that behavior did not amount to what the framers understood to be a high crime or misdemeanor. All right. So I want to walk through the process of an impeachment and then a later conviction in the Senate. And so I want to set up a fun example. I meant to try to keep the uh, political raker out of it. So I'm coming up with a totally fake, fictitious example in a future time. And so let's say the president of the United States uh, is me. And so I'm the president in the future. And let's say that we live in a very health conscious world and laws are passed that ban Twinkies. And so my, my personal preference is uh, zingers or powdered donuts. But let's say that uh, in, in the interest of preserving the lifespan of Americans everywhere, the decision, the law of the land is that we are going to prohibit the eating, selling, consuming, whatever of Twinkies. And so Let's say I'm in the uh, the Oval Office. It's the uh, the eve that the law goes into place. I decide, you know what? We're never gonna have Twinkies again. I'm gonna grab the Vice President. I'm gonna grab uh, I'm gonna grab the uh, Chief of Staff. And we're gonna go get some Twinkies from the Seven Level. We'll come back. We'll have a little Twinkie party. And so I'm doing that, and we're we're enjoying ourselves. We eat too many Twinkies. We start not feeling great. Decide to call the night and go to bed. I don't clean up my desk, right? And so I uh, get up. Early the next morning, got a meeting with the Speaker of the House. Speaker is in the office, in the Oval Office, waiting for me. And she's furious with me. So I'll say, hey, what's going on? What, what happened? And uh, the Speaker of the House says to me, you ate Twinkies. It's against the law to eat Twinkies. Like, no, no, no. That was last night. And the Speaker of the House doesn't believe me and says, and I'm going to use this as an example uh, for a couple of questions here. So the Speaker of the House doesn't believe me. Say, who would leave Twinkie wrappers on their desk and uh, you know claim they didn't eat them? And fair point. You know, it's going to be hard to disprove that. Speaker of the House takes a picture, storms off, and I find find myself embroiled in an impeachment proceeding and the Senate sees those, uh, you know, sees those records and decides to uh, convict me. So, Professor, based on my hypo that I put out there, what's the process of impeaching me going through the House and then into the Senate? Can you walk us through that, including, you know, some of the standards of proof and any evidence and any defense that, are, that, that there might be? Well, once the House has been made aware of, you know, some impeachable offense, whatever it might be, potentially impeachable offense, it's probably going to go through some process of evidence collection, though that can be awfully quick and sometimes informal. In the case of Andrew Johnson, who was the first president to actually be impeached, the thing that got him impeached was a violation of something called the Tenure of Office Act when he fired the Secretary of War for a variety of reasons. When that was thought to be a violation of the Tenure of Office Act, he fired the Secretary of War one day. Three days later, the House of Representatives impeached him. So in American history, the, the process of impeachment can be very quick, and depending on the nature of the offense, the other evidence gathering process can be quite rapid. Or if we take the example of President Nixon, there was you know, a, a, a year and more of proceedings first in the Senate and then later on in the House, augmented by evidence collection by the, the criminal justice system that gathered all the evidence that was necessary for the House to decide whether they should impeach. So there's all kinds of ways to approach it. And one of the things that you have to know about all this is that although you know, the House and the Senate, or because the House and the Senate are, are given the sole power of impeachment and trial, they also have the sole power of setting their own rules. They can decide how much or how little evidence they want, how they collect it, um, how fast to proceed, and so forth and so on. But assume we get evidence over to the House in some form, they can either proceed by just going directly to the floor with an impeachment resolution or more customarily in later times, 
They'll go through the Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that's generally tasked with that under House rules, draft a, an impeachment resolution, approve it, presumably, in the House, uh, in the House Judiciary Committee, bring it to the floor, uh, whereupon you have a debate of the sort that we saw fairly, we've seen twice in the last uh, year or so, and the House votes. Now, in the House, only a majority is required in order to return one or more articles of impeachment. Once that majority has been attained, then the question becomes, okay, what happens next? And as we saw indeed yesterday, the, the, the formal thing that happens is that, first of all, the House designates certain people to act as prosecutors. They're called managers. That's a phrase that, again, comes from British history. The managers were the people whom, who, who took the case from the House of Commons over to the House of Lords in old British parliamentary impeach, impeachments, and we have adopted that practice in that name. So you identify your managers, you pass your article of impeachment. Uh, now, we, these days, we have a sort of a formal process in which the managers parade across the Capitol and formally present the article of impeachment to the Senate, whereupon it's read. And as we're gonna see, I think today, the senators will then take their oaths to sit as, as a court, an impeachment court, and the trial then proceeds from there. And that if you're uh, if you're convicted, if if I was convicted for allegedly uh, any tweakies past the uh, date by which they were outlawed, what's the significance of the impeachment and then later conviction? What does that mean for me, my presidency, and uh, running in the future? Well, the impeachment is, of course, technically speaking, just what happens over in the House. To be impeached is merely to have the House pass articles of impeachment. The trial is like a trial in a criminal case, although it's not a criminal case, but it's, it's like a trial and an impeachment is like an indictment. And the Senate sits in judgment. It has basically two options to start with. It can either quit or it can convict. If there is a conviction, which requires two thirds of the members of the Senate to vote in favor of conviction, now 67 votes, then two things are possible. If the convicted person is still in office, the person is automatically removed. There is also one and only one other possible penalty, and that's the penalty of disqualification. Under modern practice, the Senate takes two votes. That is to say, it votes first on the question of conviction, and if it convicts, it then moves to the question of disqualification. If the Senate votes to disqualify, which it can do on a simple majority under, again, under modern precedent, then the office holder is disqualified from ever again holding any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. And in practically speaking, in Mr. Trump's case, uh, that would mean he could never run for office again, nor could uh, you, uh, you, you Twinkie eater. That's right. That's right. Okay. Excellent. I think that's a great explanation there. And so let's say that, you know, I, I firmly believe, you know, look, I'm innocent. Uh, you know, I, I ate these before the deadline. I can forensically prove it. Uh, what are my appeal options there? You know, so I'm an innocent person that's been convicted of eating Twinkies past the deadline. What do I do? Do I go to the Supreme Court? Do I turn to a future Congress? Is there what, what I guess, what avenues of appeal are there for an impeached, uh, impeached president? None. There really are no options of, for appeal, at least on the substance of any Im impeachment judgment. Uh, the Supreme Court has pretty much indicated that they're going to be unwilling to step in and second guess you know, the judgment of the Senate. Now, if there were some patently obvious irregularity in the structure of the 
of the trial in some way, maybe, but it's very hard to see what sort of thing that the Senate might do uh, that would interest the, the Supreme Court or any lower federal court in addressing the result of an impeachment. The basic reason why is because the Constitution conceives of the impeachment mechanism as being essentially political in the sense that it asks Congress to perform a political judgment, to make a political judgment about this, about not only just about facts, but about the suitability of the office holder to remain or ever to return to office. And because that judgment is given to Congress so very explicitly, and because the nature of the judgment is so obviously political in the large sense, not the small sense, but in the large sense, the Supreme Court's been very, very reluctant even to hint that it might get involved in reviewing the results of any impeachment. Well, Professor, it was terrific having you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best advertising. Also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website, legaltalknetwork.com, so you can read those for yourself. And a big thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN crew for all their hard work to make us sound groovy. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 